Hello and welcome to Discord, a podcast to explore the intersection between music and theatre. I'm Adam Lenson, and week by week, I will be trying to figure out the conundrum that is musical theatre. Welcome to episode 8. Discord. On today's episode, I went for coffee with composer-lyricist Tim Gilvin and spoke to him about the overlap between pop music and musical theatre. Tim is based in London and is the writer of the multi-award-winning musical Stay Awake Jake, which premiered at last year's London Vaults Festival. He was a featured writer at Mercury Musical Development's Beam Festival, and other shows in development include Kew Gardens, based on a Virginia Woolf short story, and Kate and the Devil. Tim grew up thinking and hoping he might be a rock star, but ended up writing musicals. I guess, first of all, I thought I would be in a band. I thought I'd be the, the lead singer of a successful rock band from Swindon. And um, we, we had limited success in that we got played on BBC Wiltshire Sound. In episode four, I Hate Musicals, David Ralph said one of the things he thinks all creative people want is to be in a band because being in a band is just something that's unashamedly cool, whereas musicals are not. People in bands are cool, aren't they? I suppose everyone wants to do that. Um, but also they're, they're, the, they're the main composers that we, we see in our day-to-day life who are active um, and who have a voice in mainstream culture. So Tim had teenage dreams of becoming a rock star and that interest in music led him to study music A-level and then study music at university. I studied rock uh, for my A-levels for music A-level, I had, to, I had to do that. And then that took me to University of Birmingham to do a uh, proper music degree. So yeah, just studying composers like Wagner and Verdi, but also studying lead, German lead, uh, Schubert and Schumann. The stuff that's like the starting point for any music course, really. But it's that's, I guess, how I first started to study how songs are constructed. But a lot of writing pop songs as well. This sounds already like a really interesting juxtaposition to me. A teenage interest in rock and pop music, then leading on to a formal education in music at university, and then flipping back and forward between writing pop songs and also learning about song structure and music structure formally. It's only really after studying, studying opera, that I first heard musicals that I actually liked. I think it takes a lot of people a while until they get to hear the musicals they actually like. And that's because the musicals thrown in our faces, the ones given the most airtime, tend to be the traditional, cheesy, big, glossy, bombastic musicals, the Disney films, the adaptations, the jukebox shows. People assume that musicals only mean these shows. I had my songwriter identity. I was just going to write songs. And then went to university and they had a musicals theatre society that everyone that I knew was involved in, but I was sort of sniffy about because I thought musicals were rubbish. Um, and went along and it was Sweeney Todd so I had to listen to it and I, and I just couldn't believe it Sweeney Todd is a 1979 musical by Stephen Sondheim and Hugh Wheeler and it makes sense to me that Sweeney Todd is what readjusted Tim's ideas of what a musical can be for a start it is a dark brooding piece about a serial killer instead of being upbeat polished and entertaining it is scratchy unpredictable and scary the music is sweeping and thrilling and the lyrics are staggeringly well crafted witty and poetic Everyone who says musicals can't be art should listen to this show. There was this piece that was harmonically um, sophisticated and had great lyrics and great tunes and was on a par with 
maybe Peter Grimes. Peter Grimes is a 1945 opera by Benjamin Britten. And then the next show that they did at the university was um, The Last Five Years. The Last Five Years is a 2001 musical by American composer Jason Robert Brown. So I hadn't heard that before, so I checked that out. And again, it was something that was speaking to like a more pop songwritery sort of side of me but it was actually cool it sounds cool the strings sound amazing the guitars are good um, it didn't make me cringe there are I believe many musicals out there that wouldn't make people cringe who think they hate musicals even people like Tim who until 19 was sure that only pop music and rock music were worthy listening Jason Robert Brown references a lot of pop sounds in his musicals from Billy Joel to Joni Mitchell he combines it with sound drawn from musical theatre writers such as Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim. I asked him what his preconceived notions were of a musical before he discovered Sweeney Todd in the last five years. Just um, dodgy keyboard sounds, I suppose, is the best way of putting it, and sort of shrill singing. But like any preconceptions, these turn out to be mostly generalisations. Musicals exist that use many genres of music and many types of instrumentation and tell many different types of stories. They exist. We just need to go looking for them rather than simply relying on our preconceptions. However, Tim and I both note that sophisticated, challenging and artistic musicals are a lot more common in America. In America, it's much more of an accepted art form and actors can cross over more easily and things like that. But if you look at our British exports of big musicals, it's Andrew Lloyd Webber and it's Oliver. We don't really have an equivalent of um, your sometimes and your Jason Robert Browns in this country. We haven't had. And I think this is very true. We don't have a continuous history of highly skilled musical theatre writers the way America does. We don't have a continuum of examples of artistic, beautifully crafted musicals that spans nearly the entire 20th century. We don't have the volume and diversity of American composers and lyricists, such as, to name just a few, Jerome Kern, Lorenz Hart, Richard Rogers, Oscar Hammerstein, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, Harold Arlen, Yip Harburg, The Gershwins, Julie Stein, Leonard Bernstein, Stephen Sondheim, Jason Robert Brown, Adam Gettle, Michael John Lacuse, Jonathan Larson and Lin-Manuel Miranda. I asked Tim why in England, he thought, musicals were always seen as lower, lower than pop music, lower than theatre, lower than opera. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, the black sheep. And maybe it's just because we haven't, we don't, we haven't produced, um, forgive me, but we haven't produced a great musical in this country um, for a long time. So because we have a lot less history to look back on, of musicals being art. We have a lot less ability to know what a good British musical is. And because of that, we don't make them very often. And because we don't make them very often, people in this country have very little confidence in musical theatre and very little ability to think of it as a legitimate art form. So, teenage dreams of being a rock star and a writer of pop music led Tim to studying music at university which in turn led him to opera, which in turn led him to finding musicals that he actually liked. And since he liked the way musicals combined music with narrative, he decided, as well as continuing to write pop songs, to start to attempt to write musical theatre songs. I thought I knew how to write a song, so I wrote a musical, and then found out that I didn't really know how to write a song for a musical at all. I asked him to try and describe the difference between a pop song and a musical theatre song. A pop song, you just need a good sound, a good tune, good lyrics and good attitude. I like the idea of pop songs needing a good attitude, 
because it seems to me that pop songs are all about conveying an attitude and a tone rather than conveying specific detail or information. In fact, it's important for pop songs to be general because they need to appeal to everybody in as many situations as possible. But you don't need the A to B journey that you need in a musical and you don't need it to make sense within a scene where people will actually be perhaps talking to somebody directly or if not they're in they're in a specific situation it's this, and it's the specificity of musical songs that mean that some pop songs as we've seen from various jukebox shows don't always work in a dramatic context even though they might be great songs a great song and a great musical theatre song are two very different things it seems So Tim educated himself as much as possible in the craft and history of writing musical theatre songs. But even so, he says, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're able to write well. Yeah, I don't think any amount of understanding of theory can can mean that you necessarily will accomplish um, what you set out to do. You can read all the Stephen Sondheim books in, in the world, but until you've actually written something that is good, you won't know how to do it. And even once you have, you probably won't know how to do it again. So he recommends studying, listening to shows and songs that are doing well, reading books of lyrics and craft, and knowing your music theory. But he says learning on its own isn't enough. You actually have to do it, and then do it again, and then do it some more. I used to write songs sort of like two a week when I was in my mid to late teens. So before I wrote my first musical, I'd written like 600 songs, most of which were terrible. But that's sort of how you learn, I think. It's like you can't become a good chef without cooking a lot of meals. And you can't become a good athlete without doing a lot of training. It's the same with, with writing, I think. The only way to really ensure that you're going to improve is if you religious about how often you do it. I was really impressed with how down-to-earth about writing Tim was. He says that you learn what you're doing and then you just do it a lot. Too often I think writers are precious about musical theatre and songwriting and about what they've written because they say that the work has required such skill, time and precision that they're not willing to amend, adapt or evolve what they've already written. Tim continues this thread by talking about inspiration I am not sure how much I believe in inspiration. I think if you have a if you have what you might call inspiration, then the thing that you create might be better than if you didn't have it. But what do you do for those other times when there isn't any inspiration? Should you just not write at all? And then when you do have the inspiration, will you have the craft and the ability to be able to harness whatever inspiration you've had? Inspiration needs balancing against craft and skill. Theory needs balancing against practice. You need knowledge, and then you need to put that knowledge into action until it becomes instinct. Another important part of songwriting, Tim says, is resisting the urge to judge yourself as you're creating work. I think the important thing for me is to turn off the thing that makes you worry about whether or not it's going to be any good before you do it, and just do it anyway. And then if it's rubbish, that might be slightly disheartening for a bit, but you can just write a different song the next day. So I think it's really important to write crap songs. I love this because talking to Tim clearly illustrates that he knows what he's doing. But he also knows that all the theory in the world and all the knowing what you're doing in the world doesn't mean you always write good songs. So that means you have to be okay writing crap ones until you do. 
I then asked him if he had to brief a well-known rock band on how to create a good new musical, what would he tell them? I would tell them to go and sit in on some acting through song classes because that's where I think I learnt most of what I know which might not be a great deal but most of what I know about writing musical theatre comes from me playing piano for acting through song classes and finding out how an actor approaches a song It makes me smile to think of someone like Damon Albarn of Blur sitting in an acting through song class in order to figure out exactly why a musical theatre song was different and how to write a song to be acted in a specific situation. And I think if he did, his musical theatre would get better. Yeah, so I had a job as a music intern at Central on the MA music theatre course and got to sit in on some great classes where actors would bring a song and um, uh, a member of staff would give them ideas about how to approach it differently or acting techniques to apply to it. As a director, I regularly work with actors on songs and it is incredible just how many decisions need to be made and how much information needs to be decided upon to give a fleshed out performance of a song. Actors need specific psychological actions to play. They need to decide what they're using the words for and how their voice and the shapes of the phrases help to convey the information of the song. I have often found that crafting a performance of a shapeless, inspecific pop song takes so much longer because to anchor it to acting requires a lot more work. A lot more decisions need to be made and the actor needs to do the work that the songwriter hasn't done to make it specific to a situation, a moment and a present action. I asked Tim what else he learned as a writer by sitting in on acting through song classes. The thing that just kept coming back is just giving yourself an, a clear objective and perhaps an obstacle as well. And that's something I often think of when I'm setting out to write a lyric for a musical theatre song is what would the objective be and what would the obstacle be? Where's the tension? Where's the conflict? And it doesn't always end up clearly manifesting what you write but it's it's a helpful place to start I think and you find that some songs lend themselves to it so easily and are made so much richer when once you give a student that sort of key and other songs just don't stand up to it at all musical theatre songs should get better when they're acted really well rather than buckle and weaken we then went on to talk about a show Tim has been writing called Kate and the Devil he said that he conceived some of the songs in the show to function and sound like pop songs. We wrote it really quickly, me and uh, book writer Will Hammond. We'd been given a couple of weeks to workshop with students, so we wrote super quick. And we were both just trying to do things that we felt there wasn't enough of in musicals. So he was coming from a place of thinking, would this be a script that I could put on at Soho or the Royal Court or somewhere? These are British new writing theatres in London, well known for edgy, gritty new plays. So it's swearing and drugs and bleakness and sex. And I was trying to include um, yeah, orchestrations and sounds that you don't normally find in musicals. I wanted to include a song by Tim in this episode. And since we were talking about his move from pop songwriter to musical theatre writer, he suggested a song from this show that was constructed specifically 
to function like a pop song. This song is set in a graveyard following a funeral and it's about ambition. She's alone contemplating the cost of her career um, and whether or not to carry on. Basically, I just thought about the situation and found a phrase, then wrote, just wrote a song. Now, Tim says he was writing a pop song, but he knew the location the song was going to be set, a graveyard. He knew who was going to sing the song and what they were feeling at the time. He knew that it was going to be a song about ambition and the obstacles that are in the way of that character's ambition. So I would say that his instinctive knowledge of musical drama has permeated the form of pop writing and that actually he hasn't just written a pop song. He's written a pop song that belongs in a musical. But I'll play you the song and let you decide. Here is A Bigger Smile by Tim Gilvin and it's a demo sung by Tim. A little mistake And it all falls A little slip And you're back With nothing at all No more than you started with And it all falls away You make a little mistake We could all make And you're gone More than your narrow path Could take you fallen off the rails We could all make A 
To me, the song undoubtedly sounds like a pop song. It's catchy, repetitive, uses modern digital arrangement, and has quite a produced sound. But I think one of the ways that musical theatre can become more accepted is by taking the sound that we associate with pop music and with pop culture and integrating that into our dramatised musical theatre so that when people go to the theatre, there's not a hermetically sealed type of musical theatre music. Instead, we should aspire to allow musical theatre to contain all genres of music, especially genres and types of music that happen to be the most popular and the most accessible at the moment. However, unlike pop music, which is generally inspecific, when put into a theatrical context, we should aspire to make the music specific about character and about situations. I suggest to Tim that because he has spent 10 years internalising craft and theory and figuring out how to write musical theatre songs, that perhaps even when he thinks he's writing just a pop song, the other stuff is trickling in unconsciously. I mean, I wasn't trying to ignore the fact that it was going to be, you know, in this context. But equally, I wanted it to be a number, you know? And I do know what he means because it does feel like a contained song that speaks to a contained moment in the piece. And despite dramatic content finding its way into this pop song, the song doesn't move the characters thinking from A to B. Rather, it gives insight into a point in time and highlights what they are thinking at that time. It functions like an operatic aria. But I have been wondering lately if all songs in musicals need to progress the plot or the character from A to B. Sometimes it's nice to have insight into that character Sometimes it's nice to have an aria. So I suggest to Tim that this song functions like an aria and that actually it's okay for certain songs in musicals to do just that. And in response to that, Tim brings up something said by American musical director Joel Fram at a Mercury Musicals Development Masterclass. Some songs are corridors, some songs are room, which I like. I guess that song's a room. It's just a really quick room to assemble. I love this metaphor because it explains why shows can't be made up entirely of static songs. Because that would be like having a house made up entirely of rooms without anything to connect them. I then suggest to Tim that perhaps pop writers are really good at writing rooms and really bad at writing corridors. Maybe. Maybe that's it, yeah. Or maybe good at rooms but not good at uh, houses that are, like have a coherent... <laughs> You know, write rooms that don't seem like they belong in the same house. Maybe it's that. At <laughs> the risk of extending a metaphor. But I think it's a metaphor that's worth extending. In our very first episode, Adam Guan said that musical theatre should be like architecture. And here, seven episodes later, Tim agrees. At its best, I believe a good musical should feel like a well-designed and constructed house. Every room and corridor should be well laid out and there should be good flow and balance between them. The interior of the house doesn't need to be identical throughout, but it does need to be balanced. 
it does need to feel like each part of the house serves the idea of the whole. And, like a real-world house, I believe a musical should have strong foundations and structure. It should be based on architectural principles and engineering principles. Pop writers may very well be good at making individual rooms. But I think this metaphor shows how hard it is to make a coherent and well-designed musical. And why, even if you know a lot about making great songs, there's still an awful lot to learn before you know how to make great musicals. I asked him how he thought we should be trying to make musicals for people who think that they hate musicals. I, I try and listen to a broad amount of different genres, different types of music. Yeah, so I've played the, the Hamilton album to death and I've played the Parade cast album to death and the Sunday in the Park with George cast album that, but most musicals I just don't want to listen to uh, for various reasons. Um, just put it on and think I'd rather be listening to something else. And I would agree that the best way that musicals can appeal to people who think they dislike them is by musicals not just referencing themselves, but also referencing different genres of music and different genres of theatre and looking for inspiration in those. So listening to other types of music other than just cast recordings is an excellent way of ensuring that composers can create musicals that aren't just run of the mill. I asked Tim what music he was listening to most at the moment. Um, so I listen to a lot of Joni Mitchell. I listen to a lot of The Cat Empire. Um, I listen, I'm listening to Muramasa at the minute. And I listen to a, this is Danish prog rock band called Mew, who I'm really into. Uh, I listen to a lot of Biffy Clyro. I'd love to see, like, a Scottish rock musical one day. I ask if he thinks any of those artists are interested in narrative and storytelling and so could potentially write musicals. Joni Mitchell is, yeah. But, um... Because her lyrics are just... I think she might be the best ever lyricist. But, um... But it's very dense. It's the sort of thing you need to unpick, but you can do that because it's a record. Um, with a musical, it's transient, and you don't have the lyric sheet. Um, and it needs to be simpler. And it needs to have tension. So she would have to adapt if she was going to write a musical. So here is another way in which pop writers would need to adapt in order to write musicals, which is that even if they are interested in telling stories with their songs, the lyrics can't be dense enough that you need to listen to them multiple times because in theatre you only get one shot to listen to the lyric of a song. But she is interested in narrative and structure and all of these things. It's just a different way of handling it. One of the reasons people often give for not liking musicals is the very restricted types of music used often in musical theatre. Hmm. Well, that's like a new phenomenon in the musical theatre sound, isn't it? Because Gershwin, Cole Porter and um, Richard Rodgers, they were writing standards um, of the day. And then uh, Claude Michel Schoenberg was a pop songwriter before he was a musical theatre songwriter, right? And um, when Lloyd Webber wrote Jesus Christ Superstar, he was trying to write rock tunes. He was trying to write, you know, the pop tunes of the day. Chess had a top ten hit, obviously, with them. I know him so well, because Abba were writing a musical. This is a very well-made point, because pop music and musical theatre used to be the same thing. And indeed, up until recently, were very connected. However, in recent years, pop music 
and the sound traditionally found in musical theatre have begun to diverge more and more and more from one another. However, there are still musicals trying to ensure that pop writing doesn't disappear entirely from musical theatre, whether it's Duncan Sheik's writing for Spring Awakening and American Psycho, or Sarah Bareilles' writing for Waitress, or Lin-Manuel Miranda's writing for Hamilton. I hope Hamilton and its impact will be a helpful thing because it shows that you don't need to sound like anything. You just sound whatever, as long as it's A, really awesome, and B, well-structured. For those very few of you who haven't heard of it, Hamilton is a musical that combines hip-hop music with the story of one of America's founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. And it has very much helped to show that it doesn't necessarily matter what genre the music is that you use, as long as you use it well. And it works, which is the, is the best thing of all, is that it works. But I suggest to Tim that it works because the writer Lin-Manuel Miranda knows both hip-hop and musical theatre extremely well. They are both authentic for him. I think that too often, writers try and do something that they don't know well and end up doing something inauthentic. Either, for example, they are pop writers who know very little about musical theatre and end up pastiching or sending musical theatre up. Or the reverse is true. Perhaps they're musical theatre writers who try and make their piece edgy and relevant by attempting to fill it with music genres and pop that they know very little about. I did write a show that was... um like an epic musical it's going to be an epic musical in the sort of Les Mis model and um, we never finished writing it but um, looking back at my Sibelius files and things it's not great because I'm trying to in inverted commas write a musical um, so when I wrote Stay Awake Jake um, I was just trying to write for me it's just I mean I hadn't I had no thoughts about get, getting that on at any point. I was writing it as like an exercise. So I was just writing tunes that I thought were cool. <laughs> and um, it paid off, which is, which is interesting. It's good to know that it pays off to write for oneself. To write something that is cared about and authentic and close to the core of what makes you an artist, rather than trying to do something unfamiliar and distant. I always say that people writing musicals shouldn't be looking through a telescope to see what people are doing in musicals. They should look at story structure, craft, song structure and lyric specificity and then use those tools and principles to write in the style and genre that is well known and authentic to them. It was very interesting for me, like a real eye-opener. Like, don't try and... I mean, you know, it's the thing that people say all the time anyway, isn't it? But I guess till you make that mistake... um, (laughs) For yourself, you won't really understand it. But, like, don't try and be something. Just do what you do. As the interview came to a close, I suggested to Tim that the major thing I seemed to be learning from doing this podcast was that making musical theatre required a lot of knowledge of how other people have made work before you, and then the ability to wear that knowledge lightly and learn to do it your own way. Yeah, I think that's, that's great advice for life. wouldn't just be for writing, wouldn't just be for acting... I'm watching Chef's Table on Netflix at the minute, which is all about um, the, some of the world's greatest chefs. And, and they're all, it's like a common thing that they train, they understand ingredients, they understand how to cook. But it's only when they figure out how to do it their own way that they become great. So how to sum up today's episode? 
Firstly, that the main composers we see in our day-to-day -day lives are pop music writers. They have a part in our daily culture, and we should try our best not to ignore them in musical theatre. Secondly, that pop music, classical music, opera and musical theatre have a lot in common, and knowing more is always better than knowing less. Thirdly, that even if you know a lot, the only way to make good work is to write a lot. As Tim says, you aren't going to become a good chef without cooking a lot of meals. And only by cooking a lot of meals like someone else are you going to learn how to cook meals like yourself. Fourthly, the good pop songs should and do tell stories, but musicals have to tell longer ones. Pop writers are mostly used to writing songs that contain us in a situation, songs that are rooms. And musical theatre songs can be rooms that don't move us from A to B, but musicals also need corridors as well, which do. And those rooms and corridors need to belong together in a well-engineered, architecturally interesting house. Songs in musicals are each individual contributors to the storytelling of that show, but also the sum of every song has to be greater than its individual parts. Finally, it seems that pop music is finding its way back into musical theatre. Writers are acknowledging that popular music style, tone and sensibility can be combined with specificity, character, action and location to make better and more relevant musicals. That musical theatre doesn't need to just sound like other musicals, it can sound like anything. It seems to me that we're once again at a place where musical theatre and pop music can merge again. Where musical theatre songs and pop songs can be the same thing. I'm going to close today's episode with a quotation by American lyricist Yip Harburg, who amongst many things wrote the lyrics to The Wizard of Oz and to pop songs such as Brother Can You Spare a Dime. He said, A song can degrade your culture, debase your language, can pollute your air and poison your taste, or it can clear your thoughts and refurbish your spirit. Are we at peace? Are we in trouble? Are we floundering? Do we feel beautiful? Do we feel ugly? Are we hysterical? Violent? Listen to our songs. I believe all songs are trying to answer these questions, and so should musical theatre. Discord is hosted and produced by me, Adam Lenson. Our co-producer is Emma Clauber. Editorial support is from Michael Conley, Daisy Chute, Jonathan Lenson, Sarah Middleton, and Oliver Soames. Incidental music is by LP Legrand. You can now follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr at Discord Theatre. We look forward to seeing you there and hearing what you think. Our theme tune is by Luke Bateman. <laughs>